Welcome back to the Comics Course, uh, more properly known as Muscatonic University's Remote Education Offering from the Literature Department of Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History. This is your ever-harried Professor Hamby, uh, along with his ever-diligent T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Now, we are here on Thanksgiving, and I'm going to blow through the departmental updates real quick. Professor Feckett is gone, so I'm continuing to remodel the dead uh, professor's adjacent office while he's gone in order to install my sauna. Uh, I don't know if I ever learned it to begin with, did I? You took the man's sauna, and you can't even bother... It's my it. sauna, it was his office, my sauna. Sorry, you took the man's office... Well, he's dead, he doesn't need it anymore. Made it your sauna, and you can't even bother to know his name. No. <sighs> of course. So, Feckett is gone with his bride, classes are out, the manticores are on vacation... So no updates in any of those areas. Now, as far as the podcast distributed form of my lectures goes, the website is up, comicscourse.org. I'm not a web designer. I'm a college professor. So it's pretty crude, but the information is getting in there. And I will, before I upload each podcast version of my lectures, update the reading list on there, as well as people have wanted updates on Thomas and a few other things. So other information will make its way on to there as I have time. As usual, my Twitter is available, Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. I have an email address at Miskatonic, but students send me classwork there and questions about class, so I don't read it. Uh, also, Captivate.fm is used to distribute the podcast to all the various services, so comicscourse.captivate.fm can be used to listen to the podcast directly, as well as it being available on Apple Music and iTunes and all that kind of stuff. So let's jump into Thanksgiving. It is today, American Thanksgiving. We are recording. Uh, Rowan and I just finished eating a meal that the commissary brought over with ham and mashed potatoes and baked carrots and all kinds of great stuff. The dressing was superb. I additionally was given a special aperitif by my dietician that smelled of almonds and peppermint. Um, it's very refreshing. I feel a tingling all over my insides right now. Um, that's kind of actually making me a little numb and my breathing a little slow, but I, I'm, I'm sure that's just the warmth of the liqueur spreading. Um, anyway, let's move on with the actual topic. Now, I, I will say up front, I grew up thinking of myself as two things, Native American and Irish. Uh, I don't know if I actually am of Native American heritage. That information came from my paternal grandfather, who was a very colorful character and had a fascination with cowboys in the Old West himself. And I, I think it's plausible that I'm perhaps not. But I grew up assuming I was. In fact, so much that I ended up in major conflict when I was in high school because I wasn't willing to put up with a teacher's comments which by today's standards would be awful, but back then people just kind of shrugged away. She sat in an AP history class, uh, advanced placement for those who aren't Americans, and which is supposed to be you get college credit for with an exam at the end of the year. And she said the best thing we ever did for the Indians was kill off all the adults with diseased blankets and shooting them so that the kids could be brought up as Christians and save their souls. 
and uh, I was not happy about this and required uh, myself to be transferred to a non-college credit class because I wasn't willing to put up with her anymore. Um, and that's just within my lifetime. I'm pretty sure she'd be fired for that now. Oh, definitely. And but, probably blacklisted. But that tells you how much the world has come in really just a few decades. So I, I've always, whether or not I actually have any uh, indigenous American blood in me or not, uh, I, I grew up with an idea that they should be, it should, representations were often stilted, and I paid some attention to them. With that said, I'm not a fan of Westerns. I'm not a fan of Western comics. And as I go through here, I'm going to talk about some representations outside comics because I think it's important to inform us because for people like me who did not read Western comics, the stereotypes of Westerns often came from old movies and TV shows and things like that. And they're pretty painful. And in fact, in a lot of cases, I think even worse than the comics. In fact, one pleasurable discovery as I went through this was, frankly, I expected the representations in this random sampling of comics to be as bad as the old movies I remember from TV when I was a kid. And they're not as bad as the movies were. I'm not saying they're great. Plenty of problems. But they weren't as bad, at least based on this random sampling. Now, before we jump too much into it, I do want to throw out a recommendation for a more scholarly work. This is one that I found both entertaining and educational about the history, uh, uh, not so much the history actually, but about representation of indigenous Americans in comics. And it's called Creatively Native Americans in Comic Books, a critical study by Michael Shahashi. Now, I may be mispronouncing the last name. If so, I apologize to the author. It is spelled S-H-E-Y-A-H-S-H-E. And I'm not familiar with the pronunciations of the names from his tribal origin, so I'm making my best try at it. Uh, it's published by McFarland and Company, copyright 2008. Uh, it will be on my reading list. You can get it on Amazon and Kindle. I got it as a Kindle book, and I think it's an excellent read. And an excellent read from somebody of indigenous American origin about the representation in this medium. And well worth reading. Now, I'm going to say my approach here was to take a random sampling of comics that I had available from the Western genre, and I took them mostly from what is called the Golden Age of Western comics. Now, let me go back a little bit before that to give some context. The first representations of sort of the Wild West as a fantasy genre or a romanticized genre really came about during the time of the Wild West itself. People in the East ate this stuff up, and it continued all through the early 20th century. It was a popular topic in pulp magazines and dime novels, and when comic books came along, they were part of it. I mean, New Fun Comics in 1935 had a Modern West feature featuring Jack Woods, and uh, also in February of 1935, same month, uh, Centaur Publications had the Comics Magazine, which had an Old West feature called Buckskin Jim. So this is back to the very beginning of comics. Um, now, neither of these were dedicated to Westerns, but it didn't take long to create a Western dedicated comic. Let's jump forward to a February of 1937, just two years later to the same month, and the Comics Magazine Company published Western Picture Stories. 
Uh, and arguably, Star Rangers number one, February 1937, might have also been the first Western comic. It just depends. We're not sure which one actually came out quite first on which week. But either Star Ranger or the Western picture stories. So there we go. Going back to 1937, the first dedicated Western comics. Now, they weren't huge to begin with, but they were part of the mix just like they were in pulp magazines. When Superman came out and superheroes became big, they stayed there. In fact, Westerns were a backup feature in many comic books. Remember, back then, comic books were not largely single story books. They were more like ongoing anthologies, kind of like manga still is in Japan to this day, with things like Shonen Weekly. We started that format. The Japanese, in fact, probably copied that format from us and just never discontinued it like we did, which has to do with our rise of the direct market and all that. We're not going to get too much into that right now. So this happened. Um, but then something came along called the Congressional Committee uh, that scared the living crap out of people. And it came along at the same time that superheroes lost popularity in the American comic book market. But what wasn't happening in the late 40s and early 50s was a lack of interest in Westerns. So while superheroes really dipped down for a while and the golden age was kind of dying out from superheroes, Westerns continued to gain in popularity. And they were also popular in the movie theater and other things. What are you looking for? You're looking all over the office. Have rats come through the walls again? I can hear them. You can hear them? Am I that boring? that you're looking for the rats to have a conversation with. There is a rat named Buster around here, and we'll talk about him when we get to Black Panther. Okay. Buster's going to join us along with the Golden Frog. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, talking is a possible descriptor. Anyway, um, but Buster collects pants, but that's a different issue. We'll talk about that when we get to Black Panther. We're not talking about that right now. We have to talk about indigenous Americans. Pay attention. You're my TA. You're supposed to hang on my every word. No, I'm not. That's a great approach. Well, how can you do that unless you know what I lecture about? Notes. Oh, my Lord. As if I gave you real notes. Um, that would have required work on my part. This is you're the one giving them to. That's fair. So, are you going by Thomas's notes? Yeah. I thought he wrote them in Aramaic. Oh, that was nice of him. Uh, considering he's out there spit-roasting penguins for Thanksgiving dinner right now, I'm not sure how much I'd trust him. Um, I mean, I love the boy, but he's a lunatic. Anyway, enough deviations. Let's return to indigenous representations in Westerns. So, I don't remember what I was talking about before you distracted me by looking around like a crazed psychopath. But I'm pretty sure I was talking about the golden age of Westerns, and how from the late 40s onward, uh, Westerns were huge in comics. And there were so many published, there's no way that I could do a representative sampling of them all unless I was really taking the time and effort to like publish a whole book on this, which I'm not personally terribly interested in. But I decided I could do a random sampling of available titles that I had in my collection and use that to look at how these indigenous Americans in this Old West setting, and I'm using Old West here sort of geographically, a time setting as well as the people of 
and how they're represented and how do they fit into these sort of tropes out there. Now, for those who don't know what I mean by tropes, I'm talking about the tropes that were set up by shows like Lone Ranger and John Wayne movies. Now, when for your generation, I, I'm going to take a gamble here. You have never seen the Lone Ranger TV show or a Lone Ranger movie or any of that, have you? No. Do you know who the character is? I've heard of the name. I don't know anything about the name. Yeah. Okay, so you don't even know why he's the Lone Ranger or what he does. Yeah. Yeah, he was a Texas Ranger. He was left for dead. I think his family was killed by outlaws at a silver mine, so he creates silver bullets uh, as his signature to shoot bad guys with and keep his identity a secret, even though his whole family's dead already. I, yeah. It, by that time, the like Batman trope of keep your identity secret to protect people was well accepted. I don't know why they applied it to somebody whose whole family was dead. Um and then he had a sidekick named Tonto. Now, Tonto very much fit an archetype in literature that we call the noble savage. He's not formally educated. He doesn't know anything about science. He doesn't know culture. He may not even know how to read. But he's a noble soul. It's certainly not the only instance of it. There are many, many, many instances of it, usually a result of romanticizing non-Western culture, in this case, the indigenous, indigenous American culture. And Tonto's spoke with this very stilted form of English that I, I'm not even going to try to duplicate. It was painful. Uh, but one of the things that Michael, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name, but the gentleman that wrote about Native American representations in comic books talked about was he would watch things uh, with Native American characters or read comics with them and sort of try to guess before he saw or heard their speech are they going to talk like Tonto? The, this, this stilted speech became dominant. I'm not sure it originated with Tonto, but I think he's iconic for it. And it is the sort of speech that they impressed upon indigenous American characters as if to say, it doesn't matter how much they speak English. It doesn't matter how much they interact with native English speakers. They will always speak like this because they're inherently savage and can't understand the complexity with their little indigenous brains of the genius and beauty of English. Yeah, genius. But that's kind of the implication. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it does paint these pictures of them as not just uneducated, but incapable of education. And while Tonto was a noble savage, this theme of being savage played throughout representations of indigenous Americans throughout everything. If they weren't noble savages, they were malicious savages or just savage savages. But I mean, savage was a primal archetype. So much so, in fact, that many of the quasi-Native American characters that were represented in comics were, in fact, honkies white people. And we've seen this trope with other things. When we talked about Shang-Chi, uh, Fu Manchu had to be educated in the West. Shang-Chi had to be half white. Well, they wanted to pull on the imagery of Indians, which was cool, or indigenous Americans, and, but they didn't, some companies, some writers, some editorial staffs, didn't want their heroes to actually be indigenous. So we had characters like the Apache Kid, 
a white kid who grows up with Apache or Tomahawk or the white chief, you know, and, and it's, it's, I mean, many of these characters like the Apache kids, you might forgive and say, well, they grew up in that culture, but why not just have an actual Apache who's a hero? Um, and, and then some like white chief were so bad. They didn't even grow up in that culture. It's just kind of cultural appropriation even back then and, and really cringy. And just so that people don't say, well, you can't judge people by today's standards. There were people back then who understood these things. They may not have used quite our language, but they did. So I, I want to jump now into some of the individual books and their treatment of figures. And you're going to have to forgive me a little bit because I've got a lot of material to kind of go through and show. But I'm not going to try to do this chronologically, I think, because I've got kind of stuff piled up here. But most of these are around the late 40s to early 50s, which is in many ways the golden age of Westerns. One fascinating thing I found, and I've picked representative samples out here, is that in a given line, the representations tended to be pretty consistent. In other words, if Dell is publishing a comic like The Chief, which is going to be the first one I talk about, then they represented indigenous Americans pretty consistently through the run of that title and onward and so forth. So clearly they sat down and said, this is how we want to represent them. And it wasn't entirely haphazard. Now, The Chief was published by Dell Comics and it later changed its title, I believe, to The Indian Chief, maybe to be more clear. I'm looking at issue number two here, which was 10 cents. Imagine 52 pages for 10 cents back then. Right. Uh, beautiful painted cover, though. Yeah. Um, now, as you go into the book, it has a black and white page of Indian sign language. I'm very doubtful about the truthfulness of these incredibly obvious and stupid sign language symbols that they claim Indians spoke with. Um, yeah, this sounds very dubious. In no context for what they mean by Indian sign language. I mean, Indians had language. They had words. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't deaf. Well, not all of them. But one of the interesting things is this is a title where the Indians were very much protagonists. And this is an attempt to tell a story from an indigenous American standpoint. Now... Is it actually an indigenous American standpoint? They don't even credit a writer on the page here. Uh, I, it was probably a white guy. Um, but it was an attempt to tell a sort of Native American legend. And what I suspect they were attempting to have be a, 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 a way that was faithful and not insulting to its people. And they show city building and things like this that a lot of the old Western uh, representations of indigenous Americans ignored. You know, there is this sort of tendency to do what Michael Shahasi, sorry if I got your name wrong, um, called Pan-American. And I like that phrase, you know, this, oh, they're all plains dwellers that all dress like this and all act the same way. And no, that's not true at all. I mean, there were city buildings. There were those that built in cliffs, those that lived in caves. I mean, all kinds of different people. So I thought the chief was an interesting attempt uh, with some southwestern influence. I mean, clearly some of these people are borrowing aspects from what we might in modern day think of as 
as Tekken culture. Um, and obviously there is a cultural line there that's not pure. I mean, as you move to the Southwest through Mexico, you're going to have cultural influences that overlap each other. And I thought The Chief was an interesting comic. Now, is this authentic in any way, shape, and form? No, it's not. But good guys are indigenous Americans. Bad guys are indigenous Americans. They don't act stupid. They they aren't represented with stilted speech. Um, It is an attempt to make what is honestly disposable entertainment. But do it in a non-insulting way. Uh, which I liked. Now, I'm going to jump to Crack Western number 77, which was published in 1952. And you, you see something a little different here. Here we have a cowboy on horseback who is trying to grapple uh, some sort of Indian warrior who's also on horseback with what might be the smallest tomahawk I've ever seen. I'm also slightly concerned about how red his skin is. Right. I mean, he, he's not just red, Indian red. He is, I've rolled around in orange mud red. Um, I, I mean, he's like, that's a serious sunburn. Serious, serious, serious sunburn. I don't care what race you are. That's a hell of a sunburn. I don't, I think that's past sunburn. I think it's infected. Right. Yeah, that's pretty bad. And the title says, An Arizona Reigns Thriller, Comanche Terror. So... Let's go ahead and jump into this a little bit. Now, I will say also, if anybody wants to go back and read old Western comics, the absolute best part of the old Western comics is actually not the comics. It's the advertisements in them. Wait, this is a real advertisement? Yeah. Electric Jack Straws. Sorry, folks. We're deviating a moment for my TA to read something in black and white, which is, you know, surprising her. like a joke bit. I didn't think this was serious. Yeah, this this is a, a comic. Specifically from 1952. That's kind of cool. Anyways, sorry. That's alright. See, comics are fun, folks. <laughs> um, this, this follows another pattern that is typical in a lot of comics I found where the Indians are kind of a faceless threat. I mean, we really only, through this whole story, despite it being called the Comanche Terror, uh, we only get a couple of panels with Indians in them, and the story is really about this ignorant, stupid army uh, officer and how he's putting everybody in danger as the Indians come forward. And this is a representation of the Indians as savages, as they're like a for, they're represented like a force of nature. Indians exist and therefore they're going to attack you. And we only I think they get maybe one or two sentences in the whole story and they show up in a few panels, but they're just represented as a malicious force of nature. Are, are they colored in with red skin? Well, as you can see here, they kind of have more of a tan skin in this representation. But we don't see them much. And again, that is a common representation. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned the title of the chief earlier. It later became Indian Chief by Dell. 
They featured their own characters by this point, by issue number uh, 11, I believe this is. We have Indian Chief featuring White Eagle. And again, we still have these beautiful painted covers. I mean, Dell back in the day really put effort into their work. And we still have these Pan-American stories um, where they're kind of abstractly Indian. They're, there's, there's no attempt at authenticity here, folks. They're not distinctly Lakotian or Comanche or Apache or, you know, any other given tribe or people. They're just kind of generically Indians. But it's Indian stories featuring Indians as protagonists and antagonists. Uh, and they're just kind of meant as entertainment. But in a way, are kind of respectful in that regard. I like the painted panels. Yeah, the covers? Yeah. Yeah, they're gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. I will tell you, Dell back in the day did not skimp on their covers. They wanted to grab your attention. Now, I'm going to jump to the Blackhawk, Indian Tomahawk War. Now, this was interesting because it was a one-shot. This was a one-shot published by an off-press that's not well-known these days um, called Avon Periodicals. But Avon published a lot of comics back in the day. And this was an attempt to tell the true story of Chief Blackhawk, who was an actual figure in the Old West who opposed colonial uh, settlers from the eastern coast of the U.S., spreading west. Uh, and you can read up about him in history. I am not qualified to say how accurate this is. I'm not a scholar of you know, the Old West. I've not read biographies of Blackhawk. I have not read in-depth uh, material about the settlement of the Old West. But again, it from reading this, I can say there is an attempt to represent them with some sympathy. You know, Black Hawk has responsibilities as a person. They don't speak in a stupid, stilted way. They do use some phrasing that's a little weird here and there. There are a few of what at least the author thought were legitimate indigenous terms tossed in. Keep in mind, this was pre-internet, and some research material is not as readily available as it is now. And there is a definite idea that the indigenous Americans are being pushed, and there are conflicts among the indigenous Americans. I am surprised about, about how non-flagrantly racist these are. Yeah, I'll be honest. Going into this, I assumed that this would be the worst of the black and white cowboy films I saw on, uh, you know, old movie channels as a kid in comic book form. And they weren't. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that there is a lack of racism. And we'll run into a few here with some real racism. Mm -hmm. But it, it's actually fairly surprising. In fact, let's bring up one that I think was even consciously and intentionally um, sensitive. And that is All-Star Western. Now, All-Star Western was fascinating for a couple reasons. I'm going to start off here with one where the cover involves this red-headed hero, um, one of the Trigger Twins, which was a figure from the comics back then. And this was April, May, and there's a bunch of Indians, and a, one of them's drumming. The others appear to be carrying weapons, maybe in war paint. 
and dancing around a fire. The perspective's a little awkward, but still a pretty interesting attempt to create this uh, foreshortening effect of the heroes in the background with the fire behind them and the Indian Braves. It's obvious the artist wanted to paint the Indians more than he wanted to paint the hero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or draw. And this was number 58 of All-Star Westerns, published in 1951. By DC. Right, by DC. DC Comics, who we still know to this day. Uh, by now, the logo had become that infamous DC bullet. The lead characters of All-Star Western for a long time were the Trigger Twins, a pair of characters where basically they were identical twins. One of them was kind of hopeless at combat and stuff, but he wanted to be the sheriff while the other one, who was a great trick shot and a really tough guy, wanted to be left alone to run the general store. So the one that wanted to be the sheriff was, and then the one that actually was a tough guy would pretend to be his brother when the bad guys really needed catching. And it was an attempt to combine action and comedy. Um, I never cared for it, but again, I'm not a fan of the genre. So again here, period ad for royal desserts and puddings and custard. Oh, dear, for but here, I, I, probably not under that name anyway. <laughs> but we get after the Trigger Twin story, and here we get an interesting page. Now, you will find this on all of the DC Comics at the time, and it is a half-page graphic for the Editorial Advisory Board. We get a big symbol in the center that says Superman National Comics DC, and then we get four names with a bunch of credentials. Hey. I hit it once, woman. I've only hit it twice. Oh, it's been more than twice. Anyway, while I'm being besmirched by my TA, might I add, um, four big names here. Dr. Uh, Larita Bender, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, School of Medicine, New York University. Josette Frank, Consultant on Children's Reading, Child Study Association of America. Dr. W.W.D. Sones, that's a heck of a name. Professor of Education and Director of Curriculum Study, University of Pittsburgh, Dr. S. Harcourt Pepperd, Pepperd, Director, Essex County Juvenile Clinic, Newark, New Jersey. And then it says all these titles, they help us guarantee are excellent and good for kids, basically. And they list all their titles, Action Comics, Adventure Comics, All American Western, All Star Western, so on and so forth. So... I found that All-Star Western was particularly interesting of the ones I randomly sampled for being, for avoiding negative representations of Native Americans or indigenous Americans. Uh, in, in fact, in the ones I sampled, in the, in, in the Old West stories, like the Trigger Twins, Native Americans didn't pop up in them. They, they seem to very consciously be white people fighting white people. And then there was a Caballero story which dealt with the Southwest with kind of a Zorro-like figure. And this particular one had a cartoon that really amused me. It was an ongoing joke, uh, Big TP and Little TP. And they were two Native Americans. And in this one, one they're dressed in this Pan-American silly style, but one of them dresses the other up, puts, you know, like a Native American blanket under him, dresses the scene, and throws up a sign that says tourist special. And then these tourists come by on a train and go, how picturesque, so quaint, how primitive. And they're all taking pictures. And then they show, uh, they extend the panel, 
so that little TP sitting over there with a sign that says photo developing, printing, and enlarging. And he's obviously ready to take their money. So, I mean, they're playing off the shtick of we start the comic, this cartoon, uh, showing you this this inaccurate pan-Indian view of indigenous Americans. And then we turn it on its head by the last panels by making fun of the people who think it's real. Um, and then, and we also had, you know, things like, uh, other character features in these, like the roving ranger and characters like that. But at the end of these books were the features of Strongbow. And Strongbow was the indigenous American feature, but it took place in pre-Columbian times before European settlers came to the new world. And so it was Indigenous Americans versus Indigenous Americans as all the cast. And they didn't speak in a stilted way. And while I'm not going to claim that their dress was authentic in any way, there was an attempt to make it diverse. I mean, there, there were Native Americans wearing buckskin pants. Tribes had distinct hairstyles. Clothing was different. There are indigenous Americans dressed far more involved ways with more decoration here than I saw in any other book. And now, is it accurate to any given tribes? I don't know. But it also took place in pre-Columbian times where we don't have very good records. So I think the artists and writers had a little bit of freedom to kind of make things up as they went. And they're not clear about how far pre-Columbian it was. But again, I think... I have to wonder if that editorial board was at all a factor. The, the People were not completely ignorant of social sensitivity at the time, even in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, people knew that being racist was being racist, even back then. Now, they might have felt it was okay to be a racist, but they knew it was racist. And I wonder if some of that editorial board had an influence there in saying, you should be careful about how you represent people. Then we get to titles like Indian Fighter. Uh, this particular one I'm showing here is from 1950. It says, Flaming Arrows, Revenge of Chief Crazy Horse, Red Devils of Coyote Cannon, Canyon. And again, we have things like Chief Crazy Horse's Revenge. And these have stories of indigenous Americans fighting white people. This is one of the first ones where we really are seeing in this random sampling. Now, Chief Crazy Horse was also a real figure. Now, a lot of this is, of course, highly fictionalized. But again, we don't have that stilted Tonto speech. I think their representation is a little bit overly simplistic. I mean, the Braves are wearing simple feathers in their hair and are bare-chested, but frankly, the art's pretty crude in it anyway. I mean... The American soldiers aren't much more than blobs of blue and black themselves. They're not doing the mini papers either. Right. I mean, the art is just not good. Now, this was a title published by Youthful Magazines, and this is probably one of the most racist I found throughout the issues of Youthful, of Indian Fighter that I read, uh, published by Youthful Magazines. Frankly, the good Indians were the ones that cooperated with the white man. They were the ones that sold out other Indians, the ones that protected the white women. So there were the malicious Indians 
And then, yeah, I'm sorry, but I kind of read it as the Uncle Tom Indians. Um, now, sometimes these white people were looking to do bad things. So you could argue, is it really fair to call somebody an Uncle Tom when they're preventing a woman from getting murdered and raped? Well, no, it's not fair. But still, the way it was represented in the story wasn't really that the Indian was doing the right thing because it was right, but the right thing was always helping white people. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that doesn't sit real well with me. Then we move on to titles like Black Diamond Western. Now, this was one I'd never really even heard of before starting to do this. And here I've got some titles from Black Diamond that were published in 1949 and 1950. The first one we're going to look at here is number 17. Um, there are some interesting names here, like Lev Gleason, that was the publisher of it, and we could talk about, at length, his career in the comic book industry and influence he had. We're not going to do that right now. At last, in safety. Yep. Yeah, they, they, they were trying to get people to lose weight even back then. Now... Here we see a common theme, uh, and that again was a theme in Black Diamond. We had these title long consistencies. They picked a shtick and they chose to stick to it. And here it is the Indians teaming up with the bad guys. Now often the Indians are manipulated into it because they're savages and they're simple-minded. They can't figure out they're being manipulated, right? Clearly. Um, but the Indians are teaming up with white bad guys and for example, in one line here, the Indians have been manipulated into attacking uh, these wagons that are moving. The one wagon is getting away, and the white guy goes, they're getting away with the gold. And the Indian goes, no, white man, we do not care about gold, but your skin brother's guns. And yeah, Black Diamond showed the Indians as overly simplistic. They use tilted speech. They use these weird turns of phrase like Skin Brothers. Um, it is some of the more racist comics I read, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, it, it was pretty cringy. But still not as bad as I was expecting from these. Yeah, they're not just completely malicious. They do have to be tricked into doing bad things by the white man. But it's still not... a. It's still pretty racist, representing them as basically children with weapons on horses. Yeah, don't get me wrong, it's racist, just not as racist as I was expecting. Right, exactly. Um, and this continues through all the Black Diamond titles. I mean, in number nine, they say things like, The Iron Horse Invades Your Hunting Ground. My white friend speaks with straight tongue. Mm. Yeah, it's it's pretty cringy. Mm. Um, and, and by the way, that really big, elaborate headdress, mm -hmm. I, again, I don't know a lot about this, but I am having doubts about how much they wore things like that into battle. That thing would get torn up. I'll bet that thing was reserved for ceremonial occasions. And I can't imagine it'd be comfortable. No, big, heavy, fragile, and, and probably not used by all the tribes. Again, as there's that Pan-American representation. Mm -hmm. So I want to move past these old western representations some to talk about some more modern representations and how things change so let's get out of the golden age of westerns now which was surprisingly relatively wholesome to what i was expecting not ideal plenty of racism but still racist. 
you know, but not as racist as we were expecting. I, I mean, I was expecting dumpster fire racism, and it was just trash cans on fire racism. Yeah, I, I'm surprised. Maybe even a low burn in a lot of the trash cans. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously an actual effort by some companies to be fair and representative, even if they didn't have the knowledge to do a very good job like, of it. It looks like DC was actually trying. Right. Now, keep in mind, this was pretty much all white guys doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, their level of diversity was if they got a Jewish white guy instead of a Gentile white guy to write it. Mm-hmm. Which, we saw that with Black Panther, too, in the <laughs> 1970s, right? Uh... Um, I'm going to have a quick drink here. Just soda this time, folks, but my throat's dry. So, as we move forward into the 1960s, we do see yet some more diversity. I want to point out, uh, when we saw the introduction of Black Panther, we had a character named Wyatt Wingfoot. I didn't talk a lot about him. He was really introduced just a f- two issues earlier in Fantastic Four number 50. This was in 1966. And he was a Native American who left his reservation in Oklahoma to study at a college and became roommates with Johnny Storm, who goes off to college. And he became a figure in the Fantastic Four comics. In fact, being critical and saving them from the Black Panther when the Black Panther is testing himself against the Fantastic Four's abilities. That itself is kind of a big leap forward. So we had, by 1966, in a major Marvel comic, comic in their flagship title, Fantastic Four, Wyatt Wingfoot, who is a football star and is intelligent and can save superheroes. Mm-hmm. And he's not alone. Things continue to change. Um, by the way, I will say, if you... I'm going to add to the reading list some collections from Mighty Marvel Western. Uh, they were published in the 1970s, but don't get confused about them. They're reprints of older stories featuring characters like the Rawhide Kid and things like that. Uh, they're mostly sympathetic, too. Now, they might have just chosen to selectively reprint stories that weren't horribly racist. Because that might get them in trouble. And just be a bad marketing idea uh-huh. and all that. But by 1970, they knew they shouldn't, uh-huh. certainly. Um, but given the history of Marvel, I suspect they were never really horrible. I mean, we go back to the beginning of Marvel, and really Stan Lee was there as an editorial voice, except for the very, very, very beginning. He came very shortly after Marvel started, or Timely Comics, whatever you want to call it. Um, and... While Stan Lee may not have always been the best in terms of, say, women's stories, um, and never the best racially across the board, he was never completely insensitive either, and often tried to be progressive. Central progressive, but progressive. So I will, I will add some of those to the reading list as well. But by the uh, it, one theme that I want to point out is in some of those that I found interesting because it carried over into the movies that I saw as a kid was the sort of mythology about how you could have good Indians and bad Indians. And the bad Indians were usually Apaches. And you see that in the Marvel comics, which is interesting. Mm. Um, I don't, it's not that simple, of course, in reality. Now, by the mid-70s, you have the introduction of the new X-Men and giant size X-Men number one. Now this was kind of a gamble at the time and I don't have a picture of it here to show you Rowan, Um, but they introduced this international cast. There was a Scotsman named the Banshee, uh, a German named Nightcrawler, a Russian called Colossus. Nightcrawler 
Yes. Oh, I see. Kurt Wagner. Ooh. He is teleporting elf. You don't want me to do my no, German no, no, voice? No, 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 no. He's only the... No, 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 no. Okay, I'll skip it. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's an international cast. And one of them is a Native American named Thunderbird. So he dies immediately. Uh, of course. Yeah. Now, he wore this outfit that w perfectly fits the definition of Pan-American. It's vaguely American Indian with probably doesn't actually connect to any tribe anywhere. <laughs> but we're supposed to look at it and go, that's Native American, or as we'd say now, Indigenous American. Mm -hmm. And later, his little brother becomes a significant name as Warpath, kind of copying him. It also sets up a precedent of superhero Indigenous American characters who are pretty underpowered. I mean, so Warpath basically has the level of physical ability as, say, Captain America, but without Captain America's training or shield. So, uncool Captain America. With anger problems. Uh, of course, yeah. anger problems. But, but this sets up, a, a, and this continues on and on and on. I mean, by 1977, two years later, uh, DC Comics and Legion of Superheroes introduced Dawnstar. Now, one of the reasons Dawnstar is interesting to me is this... She's a member of the Legion of Superheroes. So this is taking place in the 30th century, the year 3000, and saying that indigenous American cultures have evolved and changed, but continue to thrive in the far future. But again, she's wearing this very vague Pan-American Indian outfit. It actually would have been kind of cool to make it a little bit more futuristic. Um, the art here is not very good. Don't. The art wasn't great on these mid-70s Superboy and Legion titles. Um, I will say that other artists did pinups of Dawnstar over the years that fueled many a young boy's imagination. Um, look, it is what it is, right? Mm -hmm. But still, we get that vaguely Pan-American. And her abilities are flight and tracking. So you're on a team with, I mean, Superboy, you know, Monel. Characters that are virtual gods. And, you know, the second stringers are people that can unleash nuclear weapon attacks. And she can fly through space and track things. Of course. I mean, she's a cool character, and some people wrote her well. But, I mean, between her and Thunderbird, who, let me repeat, died first issue, um, not exactly establishing a lot of great power here. And, and not particularly a huge one. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? So, as we go forward, the next representation that hit it for a lot of people is somebody that will never make it into a comic because of legal issues, but he was a member of the Super Friends cartoon show, and that was Apache Chief, who, by uttering a magic phrase, could grow super big. Now, this was actually an attempt at diversity. They also added a Japanese character and a black character... And, but again, that weird Pan-American, and he spoke with that stilted Tonto speech oh. that even as a little kid, I cringed at. Mm -hmm. But that was their idea of diversity back then. Now, because that character was actually invented by the cartoon production company, he's 
never been able to be put into comic books because DC doesn't own him. Uh, but there have been homages to him in a number of the books with slightly altered representations. We're not going to get into all that right now. But let's jump forward four years later to the New Mutants. Now, the New Mutants, I, you know, if you want to make an argument for why the direct market should actually still exist, it's titles like the New Mutants, which would have never survived uh, just outside the direct market. Although I think they could survive with the internet now, essentially being, you know, a giant direct market. I love that cover. Yes. I, I'm going to probably mispronounce this name. This is one of those Eastern European names. Sinkaiswicks. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. Anyway, he's an amazing artist. Marvel let him run wild in the 80s. I just loved all of his work. Um, these issues of New Mutants and uh, were written by Chris Claremont, uh, John Moore, Craig Kyle, Christopher Yost. There's a collected version, I'll throw it on the reading list, called New Mutants Demon Bear, which draws from New Mutants 1, 3, 17, and some issues of X-Force to present a unified story about Danielle Moonstar. Now, she comes from an actual Native American tribe or Indigenous American tribe. She has illusion, reality-altering powers. This story was largely borrowed from for the New Mutants horror movie that came out a few years ago from Fox. Oh. Which I actually thought was really good, which of course meant it got buried and very few people ever saw it. Um, it's available on iTunes. You can see it. You have my password and everything. Okay. So, inside art, not as good as the covers, as you can see. Yeah. But, again, this, de this started to delve into some indigenous American mythology, and perhaps most importantly, she was powerful. She was a member of a team. The fact that she was Native American didn't matter as much as her as a person. Her developed personality and character were bigger than her identity as a Native American, but her identity as a Native American was never pushed completely in the background. It was a core part of her. I really feel like Danielle Moonstar, in many ways, was a landmark in comics for representations of indigenous Americans. If you're going to write character that's not of your race just write it like a person right now the same year 1982 and firestorm we had two indigenous american villains black bison and silver deer who were there to fight because they've been screwed over repeatedly by uh european americans they weren't just evil because evil and they were represented as now i don't think the authors had a lot of knowledge of indigenous culture unfortunately but they were represented as sympathetic and intelligent and, and there being good reason for their anger. So the early 80s were a kind of turning point. And it's continued. Two years after that, 1984, launched uh, the Uncanny X-Men's first appearance of Forge. Now, I'm going to attempt... I'm, I'm here referencing, and again, this will go into the reading list, uh, Marvel Masterworks uh, X-Men number 10 and issue 184 represented the first appearance of Forge. For those who are unfamiliar with the character, Forge is trained as a Native American shaman 
but his mutant power involves the manipulation and building of technology. So we have a character. Now, representations before this, including Red Wolf, who was kind of like a tomahawk, a strongbow figure, um, and that, you know, he was a Native American hero, but set in the western part of the U.S., no superpowers or anything. Um, But the representations, including even Apache Chief on TV, Dawnstar was kind of vaguely mystic, Thunderbird was technically a mutant, but had this vague mystic representation about him. For the first time, we have an indigenous American whose real power is that he's techno as fuck. And in fact, when we meet him, he's in a high-rise building where he owns the top ten floors, and five of them are his penthouse, and the other five are his labs. And they walk in to this giant hologram space that's kind of like the holodeck from Star Trek where he's even simulated wind and everything, and his living room is in the middle of this mountainous area with trees and, you know, stairs that float in the air. And it's all done through technology. And when we meet him, there is a shaman leaving who he's been fighting with, who was his mentor, uh, and he says flat out, I've rejected those old ways, and he has a cybernetic leg that he built for himself. And we're introduced to him as the guy who builds, you know, super advanced weaponry for the U.S. military uh, since Stark stopped doing it. Tony Stark, Iron Man. So he replaced a fairy tale. Yes. Now, and keep in now there are later appearances where Forge uh, embraces his mysticism again and even combines it with technology, but he never loses that technology. He also becomes romantically involved with Storm of the X-Men, and he's a central character for decades of the X-Men, which was by far the highest selling title in comic books. Mm. Now, not the absolute center, but a core part of it. And it kind of keeps coming better. Now, I am going to kind of skip over a few representations here, uh, some of which are treated in the Michael Shahashis. God, I feel awkward even saying it because I don't know how to say it right. So I feel awful. But Native Americans in comic books, um, representations uh, like Scout from Eclipse Comics and others, some of which he talks about. He does it in more depth than I want to here in the podcast, since we're already running close to an hour. But there are a few more figures I want to touch on before we go. That's a horrifying cover. Yes, this is from David Mack and Casadas and Palmati's uh, trade paperback um, for Daredevil. Parts of a Whole. This is... This came out... 1999. uh, Around the time of Marvel Knights. When Joe Quesada, who later became... You know, the... uh, The head honcho at Marvel. Was still working as a writer. David Mack... uh, Was already well known for Kabuki at this point, I believe. His art style... I just love... Mack's art style. And his representation... But it is very non-linear. It can be hard to follow at times. But he's a beautiful artist. And I only found this out recently. He is of some relation to Native American or Indigenous Americans himself. And his uncle is an Indigenous American storyteller. Oh, that's cool. And I think some of that non-linearity comes through. And he introduced in this collection, uh, well, they were individual issues. They're collected 
this was Daredevil number nine in 1999. Um, but this and about seven or eight issues were collected in this trade paperback. Parts of the whole will be on the reading list. He introduced the character of Echo, an indigenous American whose death and by watching people do things can duplicate their exact movements, including martial arts and things like that. That's kind of cool. And playing piano and other right. stuff. So just anything. Right. And she becomes a femme fatale in many ways of Daredevil as well as his romantic partner. So we have the blind and the deaf. Oh, that's kind of cool. Which is kind of the reference to parts of the whole. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, although here it's whole, H-O-L-E, instead of W-H-O-L-E, because, of course, there's drama. Mm-hmm. And in the Kate Bishop and Clint Barton Hawkeye series airing on Disney+, Plus, which the first two episodes are out right now, uh, Echo is apparently going to appear in that series, oh. and she's going to have her own spinoff series on Disney+. Plus. Oh, so cool. here we have a Native American superheroine who is going to be a major character running her own show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think is awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. Now, I don't have picture it here for you to see, but I do want to mention real quickly uh, that by the time we hit the 2000s, we also have a character like Manitou Raven, now, this was created by Joe Kelly and Doug Monk uh, and Justice League, number 66. Again, a pre-Columbian, the Justice League encounter him when time-traveling, uh, who was, he was a member of a pre-Columbian indigenous American culture from the time of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And he has, he's a super powerful shaman and magician. And for the first time that I'm aware of, we have an indigenous American character who has a power level on par with a Doctor Strange or a Dr. Fate, or a Superman. You know, he is a top-tier DC power character. Mm-hmm. And some people claim, even though he's shamanistic, that he's meant to be kind of an homage to the Apache Chief character I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I don't think so, but, yeah. Um, and anyway, from here on out, it just keeps going. You know, in 2000, I'm going to reference here, uh, 2007 collected uh, version of Scalped, which was published by Vertigo, by Jason Aaron and R.M. Guerra. Uh, again, this this goes into modern life on a represent on on a reservation, and it's a hard-boiled crime noir about these indigenous Americans and their life on the reservation. What happens? There are many volumes of it out there, and I think they're absolutely wonderful. If you're interested in contemporary stories about indigenous Americans with indigenous voices. Um, and you love crime noir like I do, this is a must-read. So there are many volumes. I'll only put the first volume of it on the reading list, but there are more. And then I want to close it out, because we're about hitting that hour point. And I, But I want to highlight one more thing. Now, I said one of the things I loved about Dawnstar and Legion of Superheroes is that we looked at indigenous American culture leading into the future. Recently published is the indigenous comics collection called Moonshot. Volume 1, I'm hoping there are more volumes, edited by Hope Nicholson. And they call it Moonshot because there is an ongoing theme in uh, indigenous American folklore of extraterrestrials. They talked about the worlds beyond the skies and things like that a lot. It's actually very fascinating that they thought in this big cosmic way, and they really did. and maybe partially as a result of being of a lot of prairie cultures that had big looks at an expanded sky, I don't know. But the stories in here take a lot of different forms. 
Some of them are retellings of slightly obscure myths. Some of them are very new takes on them. Like one is a science fiction take on what I think might be an older myth. I'm not sure. Um, there is a brief piece with Echo here by David Mack. And, I mean, I, I love David Mack. He can do no wrong by me. Uh, his Kabuki series is amazing also. So we, and these are indigenous artists, indigenous writers, and they're looking at the past and the future and themes in mythology that, that some people call science fiction, but they're not necessarily science fiction. And it's a representation of how using Western literary analysis doesn't always work with indigenous voices that well, which is something I think it's worth thinking about. And I love reading these indigenous voices. So I am going to put all this on the reading list. A couple of them, especially the Native Americans and comic books, the Moonshot, Scalped, are going to be highly recommended. The others are just there if people want to track them down. And what do you think, Rowan? I enjoyed this. A, a lot that I did not know or expect. Well, we talked earlier, you expected it to be a lot more racist. I did, too, from those representations. Um, and, and But I think most of the racism there was ignorance. Yeah. Now, some of it was just outright racist. I mean, the representations in, say, Black Diamond were just plain racist. But some of them were they just represented them generically or maybe inaccurately because they didn't have good information about how to represent them might have partially been a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you're not gonna you can't go back to the 40s and 50s and find racist Indians in comics. It re racist representations of Indians, Native Americans, Indigenous Americans in comics. I am sure you can. I am impressed that with this sampling, I did not run into more of it, which is kind of heartening, actually. And maybe, just maybe, these representations helped a generation grow up and be less racist and helped us get where we are today a little bit. I kind of like to think so. Yeah, it makes you feel a little wholesome. A little better. Now, this is American Thanksgiving. It is a good time to think about the fact that many of us live on lands that were once part of indigenous nations uh, and think about those issues but I also want you to spend time with loved ones and I'm going to say this if you are somebody out there that can't spend time with your blood family because they don't accept you for who you are you know you're trans you're gay whatever there's family out there in the world waiting for you family isn't blood family is love mm -hmm. all right and I think that's about as heartwarming as I can be before I self-combust. <laughs> so, I'm out. Read comics. Bye. I'm surprised he hasn't exploded yet. I know, it's shocking.